0: Welcome to the seven and seven show where your host Zach Ellison extracts valuable insights from top investment experts. Seven key questions in just seven minutes. Stay on top of market trends, expand your investment knowledge and get tips from the best in the business. Brought to you by Applied Real Intelligence. ARI, the leader in venture debt financing. www.arivc.com. Let's grow.
1: There isn't a way to truly validate it because what it is is it's making predictive guesses based on everything that's out there we think this is to cut to the bullet point Network story again for a second we think that the 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 best part of the answer is being very intentional about where and how you focus the AI what knowledge pile or source set you focus the the AI on uh we also think it's it's pretty powerful to Uh, run uh, orthogonal uh, versions of the the same question through different AIs with different source sets because you are clearly going to get essentially uh, from the internet versions of AI, from like the the common open AI things that are out there that are running on the internet, you're going to get the most popular things that are on the internet. And there's compounding going on because they're getting picked up by other AIs and becoming even more popular. And so, you're getting this risk. And so, you, you really want to ask yourself, like, if, again, if I add these five people, is one of the five kind of smarter on this topic than the other four? Maybe yeah. I want to listen to her a lot more than the other four. I don't just want to take the the volume of information I'm getting. I want to weight it by the quality of the provider. And that, to us, is one of the key things that, that we're doing and that we think people need to do to use AI to their benefit instead of get... Yeah, by hallucination I think
2: that's brilliant I mean I don't know a lot about that yet but the way I'm thinking about it is if you if you have AI generate you know, a bunch of scenarios right and then you have a process to you know, to your point to weight those scenarios then you're basically seeing this giant range it's almost like a Monte Carlo analysis you've got like you know 10,000 scenarios that AI has produced. Right, but now you're going to run a process over that that basically says, okay, of those, you know, which are the good ones and which are the bad ones, and or you know, which are you know, which are most likely to be, uh, you know, relevant. I mean,
1: yeah, and so for us, the way we think about this is, there are certain processes, um, and you were in the capital markets, and so some of these examples will make sense to you. But um, certain processes are deeply benefited by just pure automation because it really is about processing speed. It's about pulling in as much data as you can, quickly processing it, and making an immediate prediction about something that's very short term. Um, those kinds of things are going to be machine driven fully, and I think human beings that try to f- intercept that or put themselves in that loop are, are likely going to be in harm's way and are going are to lose. On the other hand, there are other processes that are deeply human. They need to human judgment, intuition thinking about the long-term future of a disruptive, innovative company is not going to be something that an AI is going to do a good job of. Uh, there may be elements of filtering information, sorting it, but our point is you want to use the AI to make this human at the end of the chain most productive. And that's how Build-By Network is built. It's really making humans better at doing this fundamental analysis by essentially enabling them to do the research management and the scenario-building that a human can ultimately control the dials of and make the final decisions around.
2: Yeah, I think back to when I was underwriting loans back before the credit crisis and through the credit crisis, and we spent so much time just doing what I call repetitive formulaic formulaic tasks that didn't really add that much value. And if we could get all those off our plate, right, and automate anything that's repetitive or formulaic, and then spend our time doing the higher value, you know, deeper thinking, I think that that's something that's already you know, coming into effect with AI. I mean, I'm already using AI to kind of automate some of the you know, basic stuff that we do and, and it helps. And then you've got this multiplier effect essentially for good and bad, right? Multiplier effect can be positive if you're able to do more work or spend your time on higher value work, but to your point earlier, it's negative when you know, stories that aren't true, or facts that aren't true, or, or things that aren't necessarily optimal are perpetuated because they, you know, because the AI, you know, globally kind of like sucks them up and then you know, distributes them to everybody. And people are like, oh, hey, this must make sense because the, the the machine can't be wrong. You know, it's kind of yeah. like when you read things on like Google, and you know, even now a lot of people are like, oh, I read this on the internet as if it's true.
1: can't. <laughs> like, yeah yeah no it's interesting so we map we map our evidence in the BPN system and and we always give a source and a date and a date of the source so it's like I'm putting it in today so it's September 14th uh but the source is from you know June and the source is uh, Deutsche Bank uh, we we have chat GPT three point five says as one of those things because we want anyone to know that this piece of evidence comes from this specific model and it is an AI generated piece of evidence and that's not commonly done. Like, if 10% of the articles on Bloomberg News are being written by AI, they're not telling us which 10%. Um, for and, and that's fine. They, they're not obligated to do it, I guess, yet. Maybe regulators will change that. But we are uh, not trying to just get by. We're trying to make good decisions about investments. And so we want to know from this pile of information that's mapped against this assumption what parts of it came from AI, what parts of it came from Zach. Who is a trusted source? Uh, what parts of it came from the CEO of the company, who is the most informed source, but maybe a bit biased to the favorable? Uh, what parts of it come from a credentialed expert named, you know, John Smith? Uh, so we basically give the who's the source, including ChatGPT 3.5 or ChatGPT 4.0 is the source.
2: It's a shame that with ChatGPT it doesn't give you that ability to get the source, and eventually they'll have to you know, they'll have to develop. An AI tool that that lists specifically here's where we got it, like what you're doing. I mean, basically, it makes tons of sense. Right, it's basically having that like trace dependence, being able to look back and say, okay, where did every piece of this come from? And so we we have to go back and look. We know where to find it. And also, I mean, for for publicly traded companies or, or any company really, you want the ability to audit things. I mean, there's no, it's not going to pass muster with. You're telling an your investor you lost the money because Chad GBT told you this was a good trade.
1: You know what I mean? And and then you oh. no company gives you no it gives you no protection, no CYA benefit, and that's why our people <laughs> won't won't use it. I will I will tell you one sobering fact that again I think is something that as people start using AI instead of just talking about it and dreaming about it, will come more to the fore. It is never going to be possible to cite the specific source for a specific fact. However, you can and we do cite the sources that it's drawn from and the chunks and the vectors and the pieces that are being used. But the way these large language models work is they take in all the information and they make a prediction or a guess about what the next sentence would be. Just like you were having it suck in data and then write sentences for you on the news. But it's it's basically using that methodology, which is different from a direct sourced methodology. So you will always know the underlying sources. You can know the chunks and, and the sub-vectors that you're taking it from if you're careful in building it the way we're building it, but you will not actually know where any, each particular item came from unless you, the human being, open up those materials and read them. And that's kind of one of the things we encourage people to do. So we give you the sources. We tell you where it came from. By the way, you can go open up some of these things and take a quick browse through them yourself and you'll see where it came from. You'll see the context around it you might not agree with ChatGPT 4.0 after you read it yourself.
2: Mike, I think one of the differentiators for investors going forward is it's gonna be people who read more. I mean, it, it's always been one, but more so than ever, because nobody reads anything anymore. I mean, they have like- I think you're right. I think you're right. It's a goldfish, you know? And so imagine if you're the person who just reads more, you don't even need to be smarter. You're just <laughs> you, you're stuck in so much more information that other people aren't gaining.
1: Now, the irony of that in particular in this day and age, Zach, to your point is it's so easy now to get summaries and now AI-generated summaries compounding that, that reading the ultimate underlying source material and then forcing yourself to critically look at things that agree with your view and things that oppose your view, so you're getting the best argument for the other side. If you do both of those things, if you read a lot and if you read uh, diverse and opposing views, you're going to have a huge advantage in this world, particularly if you're a good reading, fast and high comprehension reader. So last
2: question on AI for now is how should investors play it? Because we know there's a lot of noise. How do you find the signal through the noise and and not lose your shirt in the short term, but not miss the trend in the longer term?
1: Well, it's going to sound maybe like a broken record, but uh, I think the answer lies in the same fundamentals that we're always talking about, which is Invest in companies that have the right people, that have the right market that they're going after and have a differentiated product that is easily understandable to create a real value proposition for a real customer who will pay real money for it and has a moat around it that can't be easily uh, you know, breached. And so, that's what we're looking for. When we look at these so-called AI companies, you almost want to cover the name AI and just look at them as companies and say, who's the people running it, what's the market they're going after, how differentiated is the product or solution they're delivering, how scalable is the you know, unit economics uh, that, that they're getting on it, and then how much am I having to pay for the privilege of owning a piece of that company, or if I lend money to the company, how likely is it that they're going to you know, be able to, to repay me? Um, you have to do for us the proper cash flow analysis. Ultimately, it will be a wide cone, and that's the reality of disruptive, exciting things. No one can be precise about exactly what's going to unfold. So, there'll be a wider cone of uncertainty around the scenarios, but if you're not thinking about how this translates into those basics, you know, who, what, when, where, why, uh, is the cash flow going to be produced, you're you're going to end up losing out. And I, I do think people can do it. We have that capability, but we're subject as human beings to just being infatuated and being excited by you know, exciting shiny toys like AI. And in that world, you're gonna have a lot of people that are investing money behind concepts and some are investing behind just people. Um, the concept's key, the person is key, uh, but how that's gonna translate into a business model with a sustainable moat is what I'm looking to do.
2: So I think we agree that innovation is what drives value creation predominantly. How should investors think about where to invest. So not in terms of sector, but in terms of stage or structure, equity versus debt. Where are some of the opportunities that you see for this next part of the cycle?
1: Yeah. Well, again, one of the things that I think is very interesting right now is there is a big opportunity to get, for many companies, uh, some reasonably strong downside protection, let's say in the form of, of debt. Uh, or in the form of yield or or cash flow um, that is going to give you an asymmetric return profile. Um, Why is that more available now than it was a few years ago? Well, because there's a scarcity of other forms of capital being provided to these companies. And so, you could actually look at companies that are growing companies or have the characteristics that I've talked about many times in this call. Um, and they desire or need more capital than they can get from their traditional common equity or preferred equity source providers. And so that's one great opportunity. And I think that that's a a pretty material one here today. Uh, On the other end, I know we don't want to talk specifically only about AI or about any one sector, but, but I do think you have to accept what is the environment that you're investing in. Uh, If you're investing in an early stage company that has disruptive potential you're going to be taking a lot of risk. You're hoping to uh, be afforded a a significant return on that risk and if you have enough shots on goal and a diversified portfolio of those kinds of risks you can come out well ahead even if some of those individual investments don't work out. But if you're going into something that is disruptive. As a large R&D budget, or a large CapEx budget, or a large sales and marketing budget that's going to play out over many years before you're going to get to positive profitability, you'd be crazy not to think, I'm taking a lot of risk here. And so, I have to understand and embrace that risk. I am not from the camp of, you just don't invest in anything like that. I think there's lots of reasons to invest in things like that, but you need to be very discerning. You need to do that hard work to figure out, will this story translate into real growth and profitability that's sustainable with a moat. And if you will, then the investments can be fabulous. Uh, but if you're just investing because the story sounds good, um, you, you're probably at greater risk. So, I really do like the downside protected structures today. I think they're more available from uh, some excellent companies than they were two or three years ago. Um, I also like uh, investing in some of these businesses at much lower multiples or entry prices for the equity uh, because people aren't uh, assuming uh, that they're going to you know, grow forever and, and become massively profitable and aren't putting 20 and 25 times revenue multiples on companies as, as readily as they used to. Uh, and that's really attractive. I mean, there are some businesses that were good businesses but wildly overpriced that are still good businesses that are now acceptably priced and that's really fun and, and interactive. Yeah, I think we're going
2: through the process of, of resetting and kind of washing out a lot of the the companies that, that were never really going to be successful, but they were priced as if they were going to be very successful. I don't know when the exact timing will be. It's hard to know, but uh, I'm thinking that 2024 will probably be one of the best vintage years for, uh, for venture debt, certainly, um, but also for uh, venture equity in many respects, too, because you're going to see a lot of the companies that they're typically on like, you know, three year funding cycles, right? And they got funded in 2020 or 21 and they're going to be running low on cash and they're going to need to raise some capital and you're going to get them at much, much lower valuations because they don't have much you know, negotiating power at that point. And the sure.
1: opposite- I think that premise generally holds and makes good sense. I think, of course, you got to be very, very rigorous about the underwriting and doing the scenario analysis and the thorough, uh, vetting of each of those investments because there's a big risk of adverse selection here. Um, But I do agree with you that across the batch, if you can avoid the adverse selection and if you can get in touch with the right opportunities from a sourcing standpoint, and that if you do the proper uh, rigorous diligence, uh, I think it's going to be a great opportunity. I think 24 is going to be a great time to do this stuff.
2: I I think defense wins championships Uh, not in every market, but in this market, I think we're back to that. You know, it was the last couple of years, it's been a high flying, you know, fast break type offense that that's been quote the winner. But the reality is now I think we're going to see those that are defensive and really risk intelligent outperform quite a bit. And I don't know when that, you know, that market change will come, but to me, it's largely based around psychology. Right now, the fundamentals don't really support where valuations are in the public market, certainly. And I think there's still ways to fall even in the private markets. And and yet, you know, it hasn't happened because people just still haven't reached that point where they realize, oh wow, we're actually in pretty bad shape and we've been asleep at the wheel. But I think that's coming. And once that happens, those that are well positioned, I think will, will rise to the top. You know, I talked about this on um, another podcast with um, Ellie Perdue, who's um, the, the managing general partner of Moonshots Capital, which is a, a, a seed stage VC focused on on veterans and dual use technologies. And, and my, my thinking was, you don't have to have the best product. You just need to have the most liquidity because a lot of your competitors, if you're a startup, are going to simply run out of cash. They're not, they're not going to be able to fund themselves. At the price or size that they need to to survive, and so if you're if you're you know smart when it comes to your you know capital markets and finance function, you go out and raise probably more liquidity than you think you need. You're going to have a much much higher probability of success. And and Kelly said it best. He said that you know it's like going out into the woods with your friend, right? And and you, I always go back to this story because it's just it's it's so spot on. And you see a bear. And you don't need to outrun your friend or the group of people you're with. You just need to, or you don't need to outrun the bear, excuse me. You just need to outrun your, your friends, right? Cause the bear will eat whoever's the slowest runner. Right. And it, it's, it's kind of like, that's how I feel about the market right now. I don't even think you need to have the best product. I just think you need to be the best capitalized and the, and the, the most able to be conservative when you need to be right. And in, in other words, you need to have levers you can pull to reduce your cash burn, you know, get to profitability if you need to. Get to some you know safety, um, con, you know conserve conserve cash, you know lengthen your runway, and yeah, the, I don't I still think that message hasn't gotten fully through to a lot of
1: founders. we shall see. It'll be an interesting you know next fifteen months, but I think there's a lot of opportunity here, Zach. Yeah, um, we're we're almost out of time. We're going to split this
2: into two episodes because there was so much to talk about. But okay. I want to. Um, Let's see. I want to just ask you, you talked a little bit about, you know, debt structures. So just th- to dig in a little bit to venture debt. Um, I know that you like the space, clearly I like it because that's what ARI does, but w- what are your thoughts on the venture debt market specifically over the next you know five to ten years?
1: Well, I think it's a great time to be looking at venture debt. I know there's most people connote uh early stage companies with with venture debt. Um, and I think there will be some great opportunities with relatively early stage companies. Uh, There's also some very good opportunities with later stage companies, particularly private companies um, that are really not generating EBITDA or profits yet, but have enough scale in their revenue base and levers that they are pulling and can continue to pull to improve their profitability. And so there's kind of the way I think about it, there's two very good points on a long continuum. Uh, one is uh, you know companies that have $10 million or less of revenue. Um, many people in a lending community just won't touch them. They're not going to go near them. They're just too small. Um, and by the way, that rule of thumb exists for a reason. Most of them should not be touched, but if you filter through the many and find the few, uh, that have the potential, there there can be a, a great opportunity for um, an appropriately structured and appropriately sized amount of debt in that capital structure. The other end of the spectrum is uh, companies that have $100 million of revenue, roughly, maybe more. Um, and they are still not profitable in an EBITDA sense, um, but they are doing things that are clearly putting them on the path to that profitability, that's I think a perfect opportunity for a variety of debt and debt like structures uh, for those companies. Um, There's a third category that I'm spending a decent amount of time on right now, uh, which include uh, IP rich companies that have very strong patent and trademark and trade secret portfolios. Those companies may have unique salvage value uh, over and above their cash flows. Um, and so those are the three areas that get my attention in terms of the debt universe right now, uh, to be very specific on your very broad question.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with you. Those are three um, you know, gaps within the gap. You know, broadly with, with SCB going down and other regional banks pulling back, there's just a huge gap in the venture debt market in terms of the amount of capital available. And just for, for um, statistics sake, I'll, I'll, I'll um, leave you with this. Last year, there was about 35 billion deployed in venture debt in the U S through the first half of 2023, six and a half billion. So on an annualized basis, the amount of venture debt that's been deployed is is about two thirds lower. Yep. That's by volume and also by number of deals. So it's just been, there's been a, a total dearth of, of venture capital in general, but, and that also leads to less venture debt as well. And I don't really think anybody's going to step up to fill that gap because the banks aren't going to do it because they're going to be saddled with you know, commercial real estate books that are going down the tubes and, you know, and consumers that are levered that have too much credit card debt, you know, and you know, people that can't afford you know to, to move because mortgage rates and housing prices are too high. I mean, it. I, I think there's going to be a, a gap for a while. I don't think it's going to be this a short term, you know, dislocation. I think this is more like a, a five to ten year.
1: Yeah. I think you're in a great space. And I, I agree that there's an immediate term, one to two year opportunity, and there's a 10 year opportunity because people will learn how to use these tools in their capital structure appropriately. And more investors will get comfortable with the risks that do exist. And lending to any one of the three categories of companies I mentioned is risky business. And so you need to be careful and thorough and rigorous about your vetting. And as I said, you know, in passing, but I want to double emphasize it, Each of those three categories has many, many companies that are not creditworthy and you shouldn't lend any money to them on any terms. But then there are a few, a subset of those companies that are enormously creditworthy. And the fact that none of them can get money means that you can lend to the enormously creditworthy ones at terms that are very attractive because there aren't any uh, real other alternative sources for them, but it's a tremendously important vetting game. Because the reason most people avoid lending to companies like this is because most companies like this don't deserve your money and they're not going to be able or willing to repay you.
2: Yeah. And this is where VPN comes in very handily in the sense that you guys help de-risk a lot of these risky opportunities in a sense where where, you know, where others where others are not able to, you know, generate the insights that you are, I think it, you know, it adds a ton of value because you're basically taking opportunities that don't have as much transparent data because they're private markets and they're at stage, so there's a lack of data. But then you're thinking, okay, how can we you know, scenario test this in a bunch of different ways and by extension stress test it and figure out you know, where they're gonna be, where they're gonna be chinks in the armor, right? Where is, there, where is there gonna be weakness that you might not be able to, to see with the naked eye, but using you know, deep analytical processes, sometimes harnessing AI, not always, but many times, you're gonna be able to find potential weaknesses that the traditional lender or the traditional capital provider couldn't.
1: Yeah, we, we like to think so. We, we think that the very process of doing the analysis helps you make a better decision. And then if you add to the process of doing the analysis, doing it in a rigorous, thorough, uh, computer-assisted way using Bullet Point Network gives you a, a real advantage because you, you do wanna think about the good, the bad, and the ugly scenarios. You also wanna put realistic, odds on each of them. And that's kind of what we're doing. We're not only doing scenario modeling, but we're adding odds and probabilities or likelihoods to these scenarios. And that combination we think is is very useful and, and very powerful. We're also humble in knowing that all models are wrong, including ours, but some are very useful if uh, properly executed. And so we're trying to make our models uh, rigorous, thorough, and useful for decision making.
2: And you nailed it with the idea of Probability adjusting because you know I would say lay people will tend to think about discrete outcomes. Oh, this is going to happen or it's not. But investors who are trained think about everything in terms of probabilities. And I might say this is the most likely outcome, but maybe that outcome is only you know 25% likely to happen, and <laughs> the second most likely is you know, 15%. Who knows, right? That because there's a whole range, and I think that's where um, that's where it gets pretty interesting because. It, that's not how most people think. And if you can price according to the probabilities and you know, risk weight according to the probabilities, and those probabilities are are more refined and more accurate than than how others are thinking, you're, you're going to have a competitive advantage on you know, everything that you do.
1: Yeah, we think so. We, we think the combination of mapping evidence to assumptions, putting center points and ranges on them, and then making combinations of assumptions to produce logical cash flow scenarios and logical valuation scenarios is gonna give you an advantage, but you have to actually do all three steps.
2: Yep, so we're, we're just about out of time, so I wanted to ask what themes you'd like to leave everybody with or any thoughts about the next, next part of the cycle, next three to five years, how should people be thinking about investing in innovation and uh, protecting themselves too?
1: Sure. Well, uh, I will end with uh, my optimism. I, I I believe you should never bet against growth. Uh, and I think most, if not all, uh, fundamental growth uh, comes from innovation of one kind or another. And so I'm a, I'm a big fan of finding things that are truly better. They are truly a better mousetrap, <laughs> to use the analogy. Um, the difficulty is wading through the many things that Sound promising and finding the few that will deliver ultimately sustainable growth, profitability, and a defensible moat. And I think the way that you do that is by a combination of story and qualitative judgment and numbers, quantifying that. And so I think if you, if you whether you use a bullet point network, you know, strategic scenario model framework, uh, or, or whether you use uh, a yellow pad, uh, and just jot down your notes and think about uh, the story and the numbers and the odds of different outcomes occurring, I think you'll be in very good shape uh, in terms of going through the process of finding the winners, avoiding the losers, and you know protecting your capital. I mean, defense may win championships in, in sports. Uh, defending your capital is also very important because uh, there are lots of ways to lose money, including uh, investing in in hype that doesn't translate into result. Uh, It's also possible to falsely believe that you're going to be able to turn a company around. And one thing I will say that maybe is is counter uh, intuitive, but there are just very few successful turnarounds in tech innovation stories. And so you do want to find things that are working and back them. It's very rare that you turn around a technology and have it become a winner. That's more common in an in industrial or a manufacturing or distribution context. In a product technology context, it's very rare. So you definitely wanna find things that are working and then back them to scale as opposed to turning things around.
2: Great points. Yeah, great points. It's been uh, it's been great having you on today, Mike. It's always, yeah, great to always a learning experience. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, last thought here is, sometimes the risk is in not doing something. That's what I like to remind people, you know, you can be in treasuries because they've got a higher yield now, but the reality is when you're doing that, there's an opportunity cost and you might miss you know, some really incredible opportunities on the innovation side. Absolutely.
1: So great being with you again. Thanks for your time as well. All right.
2: Thank, Thank you, Mike. And thanks everybody for listening to the 7 and 7 show. This will be a two-part episode with Mike because we went over time. So uh, you get double dose of learning. All, All right. right. So you oh, good night. Thank you. Right. Take
1: care.
0: Thank you for listening to The 7 and 7 Show with Zach Ellison. We're glad you enjoyed this episode and gained valuable insights that you can use to grow your investment returns. Stay connected with us and access previous episodes of The 7 and 7 Show with Zach Ellison by visiting our website at www.7and7show.com or connect with us on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok at 7and7show. Learn more about ARI's Venture Debt Opportunities Fund and sign up for ARI's newsletter, Uncommon Sense, at www.arivc.com. For investor inquiries, please contact ARI's team at IR at arivc.com. Thank you for your continued support. Until next time, keep learning and growing.